So for our second paper, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Mark Johnson, who's Professor of Historical Theology at Marquette University in Wisconsin, who trained at the University of Toronto, especially the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies there, where he met various Dominicans, and he worked on St. Thomas and the literal sense of scripture, and on the sapiential character of Sacra Doctrina in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Among much else, he's written on Augustine and Aquinas on original sin, doctrine, authority and pedagogy, and has been working on a monograph, Nature, Grace, Sin and Glory, the Moral Universe of Thomas Aquinas, which will examine Thomas's moral teaching in its full historical and theological context. He's also editing from the medieval manuscripts the early Dominican Paul of Hungary's Summa de Penitentia, plus some other medieval pastoral texts. So we look forward very much to hearing Professor Johnson speak on Aquinas' scriptum on 1 Corinthians 7, the scripture as norming and inspiring. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for giving me the privilege of speaking with you today. Um, I will read from my computer. Um, I, I can make the text nice and big that way so my contact lenses don't overcorrect. And of course, I can post on Twitter and things while I'm speaking to you, too. I can uh, be busy. And, uh, and again, hopefully everyone will have uh, this. I will uh, refer to it, as you can imagine, uh, quite a bit and will perform dramatic readings at regular intervals uh, uh, during the text. In many ways, this is the spine of what I wish to do here today. When young Thomas Aquinas, the child, looked out from the family perch on Rocca Secca in Lazio, he saw an integrated whole, a panorama of green valleys to his left and right, hills of white stone with pink flecks, and flowers everywhere. And of course, there was the perfumed wind, except when there were horses nearby. <laughs> the steady stream of sense experience, family experience, language and social experience, and Catholic experience doused young Thomas with a continuum of reality that came upon him so quickly and with such syncopation that he could hardly tell when a language experience differed from a Catholic experience or a sense experience from a social one. It was all one big blur. A confusio, he would say, noting that the Latin term betokens a kind of unified blend of distinct and disparate parts. And so young Thomas did what we all must do. Take one facet of what he saw and focus upon it to the exclusion of other facets and in order to make sure that the facet had a useful durability, it had to have its own intrinsic borders or limits. When we speak of color, we note white and black as colors contraries. And when we speak of the being of living things, we speak of alive and dead as life's contradictories. Of course, most of life intellectually and experientially is found in the travel between these poles, but grasping a facet and beginning to attend to its interior possibilities is a real start. 
towards the beginning of Aristotle's physics. He points out that, quote, a child begins by calling all men father and all women mother, but later on distinguishes each of them. My beloved son, Samuel Dominic Johnson, now 24 years old and a very, very autistic young man, early on called all four-legged hopping or running creatures with a tail dog, even when it was a squirrel or a cat. We start big and then move towards the small. We start wide and then narrow things down. When we teach one another, and especially when we formally educate beginners, we take advantage of the fact that the subject matter we propose to consider can be presented at first blush as a spectrum with two poles that contain and constitute it, church or state, socialist or Republican, faith or reason, Bible or science, leave or remain. And you thought we Americans didn't know anything about <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, you know. Um, alas, as Aristotle wrote, and Thomas liked to quote, the learner must believe, which means that on the one hand, yes, the novice student must accept as true the things that the teacher says at the outset of study, expecting that over time his or her knowledge will arrive at a point when they are able to return to the beginning and reassess those fundamental poles, those fundamental truths they received on day one. But on the other hand, it can mean that this posture towards accepting something as true, when coupled with the teacher's entrenched practices of bifurcating the subject matter at hand, may result in the creation of a bridge which, by force of one's own intellectual habituation and history, never gets crossed. Years ago, when I applied for study at the Pontifical Institute in Toronto, I announced that I wished to come study Thomistic philosophy and not Thomistic theology. The welcome development that is biblical Thomism, which we champion here today, stands to help us get to a point where the bridge gets crossed, to say the least. In point of fact, the sacred scripture, did you know, factoid for the day, did you know that Thomas regularly interchanges the phrase sacra scriptura and sacra doctrina and vice versa? So in one sentence, he'll start by saying sacred scripture, and at the end of the sentence, he's saying sacra doctrina. I saw it yesterday, actually, at the Bodleian, in one of the manuscripts there, too. Just um, does all, all the time. So sacred scripture really should be the primary supplier of the Christian's vocabulary, and its many narratives, teachings, and hard sayings should be ready for immediate application in the world that the Christian inhabits. If we are able to effect this, then we can see things as Thomas himself saw them, that is, to see our world as an integrated and integral realm wherein God creates a home for the lowest of his intellectual creatures, governs them wisely, and saves them through the action of one of them, Christ our Lord. So, about scripture as norming and inspiring. What I wish to do in today's presentation is to take a biblical moment of capital importance to Christian living and point out how it spawns a history of complicated thinking on the substance and place of marriage in the Christian world. That biblical moment is from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter seven. 
1 Corinthians 7, I will say. It makes things complicated because, first, just what Paul's Corinthian correspondence is, is anything but certain. Scripture scholars suspect that we may now have, as 1st and 2nd Corinthians, could in fact be an amalgam of up to five separate documents, that I've seen that somewhere, which in turn could make a hash of our best efforts to understand the flow of the apostles' thought. In the second place is the fact that at key moments, Paul in the letters, and here in 1 Corinthians especially, may be quoting what other people are saying, such that the words there indicate others' thoughts and not his own. His thoughts are reactions to, reactions against, possibly, what other people are saying. Which is to say that it is just possible that on some matters of capital importance, we may get Paul's own thinking backwards. And unfortunately, the original Greek and Latin translations do us no help, since neither language has the features we use in modern print typography to set apart someone else's words via single or double quotation marks. And speaking of Latin translation, early translations of one key word in 1 Corinthians 7 dictate what centuries of interpretation will be. The Italians have a saying, the translator is a traitor. Traditore, traditore, amen. So let us take a look at the text. Prepare your, your, uh, your documents here. In this section of the letter, Paul had been addressing a range of things that he had heard that the Corinthian Christians were up to, some of them not good. One man had begun to live with his former stepmother, his father's wife, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says that the church in Corinth should kick the fellow out. But Paul ultimately comes to this, and this is text number one, or T1. Now in regard to the matters about which you wrote, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman, but because of cases of immorality, every man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his duty towards his wife and likewise the wife towards her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but rather the husband. And similarly, a husband does not have authority over his body, but rather his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time to be free for prayer, but then return to one another so that Satan may not tempt you through your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, however, not as a command. Indeed, I wish everyone to be as I am, but each has a particular gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Reading the text as I have laid it out here, one would think that the passage, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman, is Paul's own thinking. And possibly it may have been. But most Bibles today though, and I believe Catholic Bibles almost universally, I think today, <coughs> will employ modern typography to render the passage thus. And this is now T2 that uh, you have a little um, uh, shorter, at least at that first line. Now in regard to the matters about which you wrote, you hope you can see my air quotation marks here. Um, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman, but because of cases of morality, every man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband. 
Scripture scholars often support this practice, not because they think the original language was construed this way, but because Paul's own manner in chapter 7 is dialogical, with the Corinthians speaking virtually, as it were, through Paul's recitation back to them of what they had written to him in their letters. And Paul then responds. He almost seems to be bringing up the slogans in an effort to steer them towards understandings more sane. All things are allowed to me, insisted an earlier slogan that Paul seems to recite, and then Paul retorts, but not everything is beneficial. At the same time, Paul's response to the slogan, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, seems muted and underwhelming. The response is not an outright rejection, and Paul's admonition of a, couple, a married couple's mutual sexual service seems to be motivated by the fact that if the husband and wife do not tend to one another, they might well look outside the marriage for their satisfaction. Pick one, sex within marriage or rampant adultery. That is not a difficult choice. <laughs> Add to Paul's non-rejection of the slogan that he wishes that everyone would be celibate as he already is, and it appears that the apostle is telling the Corinthian community that sexual asceticism, abstinence, is really the Christian way. He even seems to wish that the heroic husband and wife who might sexually separate for one another for spiritual growth should really stay separate like Paul himself, and that it would be something of a letdown should they return to their former behavior within their marriage. This, at least, is how some early Christian thinkers took Paul to mean, and they pressed their case in controversy. And in their world, the Bible's translation had deep impact on just what they thought Paul was saying and what Christianity should be holding. St. Thomas will later say that those things that are necessary for our Christian salvation are found somewhere in scripture stated explicitly according to the literal sense. A consequence of this teaching is that if marriage is a true part of the Christian life, then we should attend to what scripture says about it, either in the Lord's teaching in the Gospels or in the various extra Gospel texts that would seem to confirm and hone Jesus' teaching. When it came to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, the Latin translation wrestled with some of Paul's Greek leaving the door open to a decidedly negative sense of sexual activity within marriage. Uh, let us revisit my text number one again uh, to, as it were, reacquire the signal, if you will. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to read it all, but I think uh, maybe the best part to get here is the part of, uh, where it says about halfway down, do not deprive one another. Uh, this is the discussion of the so-called merit, marital debt. Do not deprive one another, Paul is saying, except by perhaps uh, by mutual consent for a time to be free for prayer, but then return to one another so that Satan may not tempt you through your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, however, and not as a command. Indeed, I wish everyone to be as I am, but each has a particular gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Okay, now we're all warmed up. Now, while I earlier focused upon the beginning of this paragraph, this text, and its faithful phrase, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman, here I ask you to focus on the last two sentences, and indeed, the first of the last two sentences. 
I say this by way of concession, however, and not command. That word concession in English has a sense of yielding or giving in. If I concede the match to you in tennis, it means that I have given up and you win. If I concede your point, it means that what you say beats what I say. In the earliest Latin translations of the New Testament, the Vetus Latina, the Latin word that translates the Greek word sungemon, or I got that wrong, Sunge, is that right? Sunyomen, um, is that right? Sunyomen with the uh, second syllable, um, which I think has a broad meaning of suggestion and you can get even more etymological. That term, uh, is the, which is a word for pardon in Latin. So the Latin word that translates that is the word venia in the old Latin translation, uh, from which we get venial sin, um, which means pardonable. So it seems you've done something wrong, and I pardon you, I forgive you. In this view, then, there would always seem to be something forgivable about sexual activity in marriage between a husband and wife which would of necessity mean that there is something, well, wrong with sexual activity in marriage, even between Christians. That just that the text sort of seems to leave this sense, right? And you have this word vania in there, and that becomes uh, a real problem. Okay. Um, I, I will add one thing here uh, uh, as, a, as a quick note, and that is uh, be ready to look at text number five. I, I, you know, well, you're going to look at it right now, but uh, get, get ready to look at it because I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll refer to that uh, shortly. So some early Christian theologians, Origen and Tertullian amongst them, had strong, very strong inclinations towards a kind of asceticism. And for them, as for others, the real issue was whether Christianity at root was a fundamentally ascetic religion, and that abstinence and a certain separation from the world was the call of every Christian. Mm -hmm. In response to this worldview, um, we find the theologian and monk uh, in Rome named Jovinian writing in the uh, late 300s, uh, and he writes as a response. We don't have much of his texts. Most of them are dependent upon their inclusion in something that Jerome writes. Um, but with, with him, we get Jovinian responding and basically saying in response to this deprecation uh, of Christian marriage and sexual activity within Christian marriage, what we get is a response from Jovinian where he says that in fact there is no moral distinction or priority of virginity over life and marriage. In many ways his is a full-throated rejection. Take that uh, of, what, uh, of what others have been saying. And uh, at this point uh, I'd ask you to take a look at text number five. Uh, Jerome, as you know, is, is credited usually with, uh, not, he's credited with the Vulgate. He didn't do the whole thing. His first task was to go and clean up the Gospels and I believe the Psalms. And so we have other texts. I should say that that, that sort of suspect word that appears in the fourth text, the word vania, going forward in the Latin Vulgate is always rendered uh, almost universally as indulgentia as in a kind of indulgence. I should also say that in various manuscripts of the Vetus Latina, the old Latin, you sometimes got other words. I chose venia here, <laughs> partly because it sets up the discussion, but you had words like conscientia in the Levetus, 
you had concilium at one place. Uh, indulgentia also made its appearance. But indulgentia becomes the, the coin of the realm, as it were, in translations going forward, such that when Paul is speaking Latin, he says, hoc autem dico secundum indulgentiam non secundum imperium. So Paul is, is uh, but, but even indulgence doesn't quite, uh, hasn't quite uh, got us where we need to go. Okay, so um, after Jovinian, what we have is a response, a full-throated response, particularly by Jerome. Some people in Rome, some priests send him the document of Jovinian, and Jerome writes against Jovinian and writes a work called Against Jovinian. But Jerome's own desire to forefront Christian virginity seems to have him almost at every turn downgrading marriage and marriage's act. And here I would turn your attention to T6. Uh, I spoke about a, a dramatic reading. I, my goodness, this is, I've given you the Latin if you wish to, uh, to blush. Uh, but um, uh, this is what Jerome does at the beginning of the work is essentially go through 1 Corinthians 7 at the beginning and gloss on what he says. But um, he tries to peer into what he thinks the apostle's logic is. He seems to think uh, very strongly that uh, Paul really thinks um, if you will, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the subterranean thinking of Paul is one that really downgrades marriage. So uh, jo this is Jerome writing against Juvenian. He says, and again, you're well rehearsed at how to do this. You're implying your own quotation marks here. Uh, but Jerome doesn't seem necessarily to know that. He says, if it is good not to touch a woman, it is bad to touch one. For there is no opposite to goodness but badness. Um, but if it be bad and the evil is pardoned, the reason for the concession is to prevent worse evil. But surely a thing which is only allowed because there may be something worse has only a slight degree of goodness. He would never have added, let each man have his own wife, unless he had previously used the words, but because of fornications, oh, but because of fornications. Do away with fornication, and he will not say, let each man have his own wife. Just as though one were to lay it down, it is good to feed on wheat bread and to eat the finest wheat flour, and yet uh, to prevent a person pressed by hunger from devouring cow dung, I may allow him to eat barley. Does it follow that the wheat will not have its particular purity because such a one prefers barley to excrement? It is natural, uh, that is naturally good, which does not admit to comparison with what is bad. So just the, the thinking of Jerome here seems to think that, that what Paul has done and the words he used really, if you go behind them, indicate that Paul is thinking, this, if, if you have to, you do this. But then there's the rest of us. Um, okay. St. Augustine, for his part, um, and, and at his time, uh, the scholars right now are, are dating uh, Augustine's work on the good of marriage to around 404. 401 is a usual date, but 404 is now being passed around as a, a better uh, rendering. So a little bit after Jerome and certainly a bit after Jovinian, but uh, still very early on in the life of church. And of course, to raise Augustine, since we are in many ways medievalists here, uh, this is the first time we meet in him. What, what Augustine says will resonate um, it's like when the pipe organ finishes in the big cathedral, you let go of the final chord and you still hear the chord uh, as it echoes throughout the building. Augustine is always present. 
Augustine, as you know, had a concern with Manichaeanism on the one hand, from which he was a convert, and Manichaeanism had really two possible thinkings about uh, marriage and human sexuality. The first is, is that we all ought to be better spirits, and that the second is that the physical world is uh, a wretched place to begin with. Augustine could not countenance that. And of course, the problem, as you can imagine, is that when it comes to sexual activity and reproduction, we create material beings. Uh, so Augustine has to fight on the one hand to maintain the physical goodness of things and, if you will, the goodness in some way of that which produces physical things. And on the other hand, has to maintain that an inclination towards the life of spirit is good as well. On the other hand, Augustine knew of Jerome, who had maintained that marriage is okay, uh, but virginity is just way better and really is the real deal. Um, and so Augustine set out to address this issue, and in his case, distinct from Jerome, he wrote two works. He wrote one on the good of marriage, or better yet, the conjugal good, he called it. And he wrote another work, a separate work, on the holiness of virginity. Okay? But even there, St. Augustine, while trying to deal with it and perhaps give greater support, you might say, to the writings, uh, uh, of, uh, of Paul and the thinking, I think, the lived experience of Christians, St. Augustine, even in the De Bono Coniugale, still seems to have some affinity with the thinking. And here I would turn you over to text number seven. Um, and uh, as you know, if you've read a lot of Augustine, one of the beauties of his writing is that he, um, he'll, he'll use a word in one part of a sentence and he'll store it in a way and you won't see it, but it will pop up later. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful technique of writing, but let me uh, turn to the text. Um, so St. Augustine says, and this is text number seven, uh, therefore the apostle allows not marriage as matter of pardon, for who can doubt that is extremely absurd to say that they have not sinned unto whom pardon is granted. But he allows, as a matter of pardon, that sexual intercourse, which takes place through incontinence, not alone for the begetting of children, and at times not at all for the begetting of children. And it is not that marriage forces this to take place, but that it procures pardon for it. So it, it, the, it's an interesting thing, and to, to get into this understanding of marriage there uh, would, would take some doing, I think, but he seems to think that somehow the, that they are married, as it were, blankets, it seems to be, a, if you will, um, the sexual activity that takes place within marriage without the explicit wish, you might say, for, uh, for children. Okay. Um, and yeah, I should say that in the Latin, when Augustine talks about this. The word pardon that you've seen here used many times is that word venia. So St. Augustine, interestingly, seems to be uh, depending upon either what he took as a kind of old uh, official text of St. Paul or just the way the text had been spoken of and used. Uh, it is also interesting that when Jerome himself, he, the father, of the Vetus Latin, of the, uh, of the Vulgate, which eventually gives us a, let, let us assert a better translation, right, indulgence rather than pardon. Uh, it's interesting that when uh, Jerome himself writes, he uses the word venia as well, partly because he seems to be depending strongly uh, on, on Tertullian. And so when he writes his text, so he's using an older thinker and presumably quoting him and therefore using his text. So the word venia continues to be recited over and over in all of these texts, even Augustine, who at least at this moment is the, the latest of the texts that we're taking a look at. 
so Augustine still thinks that somehow sex within marriage needs pardon. Okay. Uh, I'm going to perform now some awful scholarship and pole vault uh, about uh, five or six hundred years, uh, uh, more than that, um, uh, to, the, uh, to the 12th century and to get to the world of uh, canon law and uh, theology and the growing of what you might call of scholastic theology. And what I mean, of course, here is the world of Gratian and eventually uh, the world of, world of Lombard, both of whom are writing more or less about the same time. Uh, both Gratian, if you will, the father of canon law, let us just say that, um, and Lombard, let's say the father of scholastic theology, if that works for you, both of them are concerned to try to produce an order from the disorder of many opinions. Uh, you know that Gratian's uh, work was the Concordantia uh, Discordantium Canonum, and then uh, Peter Lombard's work is the Libri Sententiarum, the book of the, not sentences, which is what we say about it, but really sentence there in the sense of opinions. So the Peter Lombard's work is a book of sentences. The point is, of, of real interest, particularly in Lombard, but also in Gratian, is that Augustine is everywhere. And when marriage is the talk, as particularly in book four of Lombard, in the distinctions of the 30s, the 31, 32, 33, Augustine's work on the good of marriage, De Bono Coniugali, is front and center. And so it's the, it's the text that really gets used as they address these things. Um, of course, canon law is concerned, as always, for church order and what I like to call the management of sin. We're about 50 years away, if, if we start off in the 1150s, let's say, we're about 50 years away 50, uh, 65, strictly speaking, with the uh, Fourth Lateran Council and its requirement for uh, at least one confession a year, annual confession that it provides. And the, the narrative is that spawns all sorts of activity. Uh, I'll say something about Paul of Hungary here in a bit. Um, and so uh, we have, on the one hand, the need for the church to manage sin, and to do that, you're going to have to assess levels of sinfulness. Um, on the other hand, with Lombard, you have a real desire not only to try to put some sort of order uh, in, in the chaos that is the number of opinions, but also to provide a, a kind of unified understanding of the whole thing, the whole Christian world uh, intellectually. And so Lombard goes from the very beginning to the very end, and here too he talks about marriage in his discussion of the sacraments. And, interestingly, uh, Peter Lombard in the discussion of marriages, we'll get two relatively complicated cases, and often those cases come from either Gratian or material that was written right around the time. So questions like, a man is married, and he runs away from his wife and goes to another country and marries another, but then 10 years later, out of uh, sorrow, decides he has to go back home. Well, the woman he's married in the foreign country says, like, heck, you're going out of here. And what's his obligation? And oh, by the way, she's seeking the marital debt. And he goes, oh, but now I'm married to somebody else. And he's uh, trying to be, uh, you know. Anyway, he, uh, Lombard will use those quotations. So actually, the book four of the sentences, and particularly any theologian's writings, particularly the marriage, that's where you go if you're interested for fun stuff. That's where, if you're a screenwriter and you want to write a play, that's where you go. To, uh, to come up with a, a difficult case, okay? Um, so, but the point is that in the canon law of the, let's call it the early 13th century, brought about by Gratian and the texts that have come from Gratian, and then also by the development of scholastic theology, what you get, in fact, is a blend, I think it's fair to say, in the theological texts, in the schools, particularly places like Paris, in the 1230s and 40s where when they are speaking about this passage in Paul 
and they are addressing issues of marriage. For them, there is always an interesting blend, not just of the general concern that there's some kind of need for pardon attached to sexuality within marriage, but also an attempt, insofar as it's possible, to provide grades for that, sec that uh, sinfulness and, if you will, the cause of the grades. What makes something a venial sin? Why could something be even more grave? And so really it's by the time uh, of Thomas, whom I will quote here uh, shortly, that we get to a desire to work out amongst the canonists. And when you look in the writings of William of Auxerre, Alexander of Hales, uh, Albert the Great, and of course Thomas himself in book four in the sentences and here in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, you will see an effort to try to put some sort of intelligibility to what St. Paul is saying. And so what, if, what we'll do, if it's okay, is I'll have us look now at the eighth text here uh, from uh, Thomas's uh, uh, lecture. It's lecture one uh, on uh, 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 7. I apologize, I should have uh, put 1 Corinthians 7. Um, and what Thomas is doing is really presenting this as a kind of fait accompli. He thinks that this is the, this is the way to talk about it. This is the way to address it. So I'm giving you, in a sense, the, uh, uh, this is a spoiler alert. He's, uh, this is how Thomas does it. And what I have here is the translation I just hammered out this morning quickly. I didn't know that there's a, another translation, so if I screwed up. I, I tend to be a little bit, as you can tell, uh, a little bit spacious uh, with my translation because I would rather have better English than uh, super tidy Latin, but the Latin is there below if you wish. So, um, Thomas has been speaking here, and he's exactly at that moment in the text where we talk about things are said by way of indulgence or vania, and so Thomas says, quote, Hence we should note that the marriage act is sometimes, in fact, is meritorious and without all fault, mortal or venial, as when it is ordered to the good of the child to be procreated and raised for the worship of God, and in this way it is an act of religion or when the marriage act happens for the sake of rendering what is owed or rendering the marital debt is actually there. And in this way, it is an act of justice. For every act of a virtue is meritorious if it takes place with charity, but sometimes it happens with a venial fault in the word there is culpa in Latin music. As when someone is aroused to the marriage act from concupiscence, one which nonetheless stays within the bounds of marriage such that the husband is content with his wife only. But sometimes it is with mortal fault, mortal sin. Like when concupiscence is carried away beyond the limits of marriage, as when a man goes to his wife equally ready, or even more ready, to go to another woman. And so in the first way, the marriage act does not call for indulgence, indulgentia, in the second way, it has indulgence insofar as someone consenting to desire for his wife is not guilty of mortal fault. But the third way, it has no indulgence whatsoever. And so what Thomas has done here, this is a, I would say, a well-done conflation of these strands of thought that you get from Albert, a little bit from William of Auxerre, uh, and also the Dominican... Uh, um, not Peraldus, this is terrible, I know the guy, Raymond of Penyafort, of course, uh, the, the Summa de Casibus of Raymond de Penyafort. Um, in fact, Thomas's teaching in his commentary on the sentences is clear that he has Raymond right next to him when he's doing that. But what Thomas has done is woven together uh, a kind of template, if you will, for understanding 
uh, it seems to me. I mean, as we know, of course, he was the uh, teaching people who were to be preachers and their task, uh, not only as preachers, who would sometimes, uh, in the course of things, have to read from this text, but also people who were hearing confessions. Okay, uh, so let me uh, put things together and, and uh, call it a day. So early on, I spoke about uh, Scripture as norming. That is to say, uh, the sacred Scripture is providing us texts that, in a certain sense, direct us to think and behave in certain ways. And it seems to me that it's fairly clear sometimes in the Christian world that this is done uh, by the text of Scripture. But of course, it's also the case that since Scripture comes from, it seems to me, the, the womb of the church in a certain sense, uh, that it's the, the, the text that comes from the church and the church judges as an adequate representation of what it lives and aspires to, that Scripture can also inspire, I would say, and in this way produce an organic understanding of the mind of Scripture and hopefully, therefore, of the mind of God when it comes to how the Christian life should be led. The text of Thomas here is really a kind of, to say perhaps too much, uh, is a text that uh, indicates that you can have uh, a fairly complete understanding of a difficult passage that gestated, if you will, uh, in this case, perhaps for 800 years, one that on the one hand takes seriously the text and has a kind of disinclination for throwing it away, how could you do that to the writing of St. Paul? St. Paul is wrong here. You're not going to say that. Um, and one that is going to interpret him and interpret what he says as real, that Paul intended to say something and that the variation of translations notwithstanding, it's fairly clear from the sense of the letter that Paul is trying to get somewhere and that what Thomas has done here with the help of many intermediaries is to come up with something that can perhaps be workable and useful and workable and useful uh, for the brethren uh, whom he was teaching. So with that, thank you for your time and attention. <laughs>